Hey, before we get into our study, there's a, a quote I ran across today that I think you'll enjoy. I shared it with a couple of people already and they enjoyed it. And so, uh, you know, that was my initial demographic. And so uh, this is on, uh, it's just, it's part of a book I'm reading. It's a chapter in that book. Uh, it's a sermon uh, on John 3.16. Uh, and uh, I'm calling it John 3.16 and the isms. You'll see why. Because the author, a guy by the name of Jerry Vines, says this. He says, John 3.16 addresses a number of isms. The phrase, for God, responds to atheism, which claims there is no God. The phrase, so loved, responds to fatalism, which asserts God is an impersonal force. The phrase, the world, responds to nationalism, which says God only loves one group of people. The phrase that he gave responds to materialism, which says it is more blessed to receive than to give. The phrase, his only begotten son, responds to Mohammedism, which says God has no son. The phrase that whosoever believes responds to Calvinism, which says Christ died only for the elect. The phrase in him responds to pluralism, which says all religions are equal. The phrase should not perish responds to annihilationism, which says there is no hell. And the phrase but have everlasting life responds to Arminianism, which says God only gives life conditionally. John 3.16 is a simple biblicism, the author says, which reveals the mind, the heart, and the will of God. Amen? I think that's pretty cool. If Definitely, if you're on a desert island... Uh, the, John 3.16 is what you want to have uh, in your heart. Uh, it's a kind of a miniature Bible all by itself. And uh, what, a, what a blessing that is. So I hope that ministered to you. Tonight we're in the book of Romans. We're in chapter 5. We're going to finish chapter 5, Lord willing. We're going to look at verses 12 through 21. And... Uh, Hopefully we will know something more about the mind and the heart and the will of God for our lives tonight after having encountered Him in this text, this living Word that He's given us. Romans chapter 5 in the New Testament, verses 12 through 21. Paul and Jesus believed Adam and Eve were real people. He believed, they believed that they were created in the Garden of Eden and that what they did had a lasting effect lasting to the present day. David Guzik wrote and he said, It is important to understand that the Adam and Eve account is not an optional passage to be accepted or rejected or allegorized away. According to Paul's theme here in Romans 5, you can't take away Genesis 3 without taking away principles that lay the foundation for our salvation. The importance of Adam being a real person is clearly seen in Romans 5. You are regarded by God and treated by God based on the actions of another person who acted on your behalf before God. When your representative acted, God says it was you acting. He says that you were in that person. He holds you accountable and responsible for what your representative did. Now, as you read the Bible, there are two and only two persons who acted on your behalf the first was Adam, the second was Jesus. When Adam acted in disobedience in the Garden of Eden, he acted for you as your representative, and God says that you sinned. But just the same way, when Jesus acted in obedience, 
He acted for you as your representative and you can therefore in him be declared righteous. And so uh, when God looks down upon the human race, he sees us either in Adam, represented by Adam, or in Christ, represented by Christ. Uh, and what those two individuals did passes on to us. Now, the second portion of Romans 5 contrasts what it means to be in Adam and in Christ. Uh, and as profound as it is, it's really quite simple. And so let's just read through it. Verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sin. All sinned when Adam sinned. By the way, guys, uh, Adam is held responsible for the fall of humanity, not Eve. I, I don't want to blow your mind in any way. Uh, but uh, it's Adam who is held ultimately responsible, not just because he was the head, but because Eve was deceived, whereas Adam sinned willfully. And so uh, God doesn't hold Eve as the head of the human race. He holds Adam and says, we all sinned. In Adam. Now, it's true that you inherit a sin nature from Adam. It's also true that you commit individual acts of sin uh, from the womb forward. But in addition to individual and inherited sin, God also, the Bible says, imputes sin to you. He puts it into your account because Adam represented you. When Adam and Eve, uh, there in the garden, when Adam sinned, he was representing the entire human race that would spring from him. And so God said, Adam, you sinned, all have sinned. Now, Paul knew this would be hard to swallow. So he gives you proof that you sinned in Adam. The fact that all men die physically is his proof that from God's perspective, all men sinned in Adam. He says that because you see, quote, death spread to all men, to the whole human race, uh, therefore you must believe that God imputed Adam's sin to the whole race. You know, it, it may seem like a strange question, but it's really not. Why do people die? Uh, especially from a biblical point of view, you know, if God created man and He created it perfect and all why do people die? People die because God said, in the day that you eat of this tree, you will surely die. People die because Adam sinned and because every person after Adam died, it proves that he has imputed Adam's sin to every member of the human race. Here's another truth we glean from this, or maybe another way of putting it. Since death is the wages of sin, and since everyone is going to die apart from the rapture, then everyone is a sinner. Do you ever have somebody get upset with you? Because they, don't admit, they don't want to admit that they're a sinner. They're not as bad as the next person. They, you know, they're not Charles Manson. You know, they're not, a, you know, a terrible person. They don't always do the right thing, but they're not really a sinner. Ask them if they're going to die one day, and the answer is yes. Well, the wages of sin is death, and so the the very fact that they are going to die proves that they are a sinner in the sense that that sin was imputed to them. It was put into their account because of what Adam did. Now, that's going to get people really riled up because they're thinking, what do I have to do with Adam? But we'll see that this is a really profound principle by the time we get to Jesus Christ. Verse 13, 
For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Now the law was not given until the time of Moses, yet all men from Adam to Moses were subject to death. What then was the reason for their death? The only possible conclusion you can reach is that the disobedience of Adam, which caused him ultimately to die, is imputed to all his descendants. And then the Bible says that Adam was a type of him who was to come. In other words, just as Adam could represent you, so could someone else who was to come. You can't help being in Adam, but you can help staying in Adam. Before you accuse God of being unfair, realize this. Just as God regards you in Adam, He can regard you in Jesus Christ. He sees Jesus Christ as your representative as well. Those who are justified by faith gain much more than they ever lost in Adam. And so we left our, our friend who doesn't want to believe that they're a sinner by telling them that, hey, because you, you, the fact that you're going to die proves that God has imputed sin to you because of what Adam did. And as they're arguing that they have no connection to Adam in terms of all of that, they don't want Adam to be their representative, then you can say, I think you do. I think this representative government thing is pretty darn good. Because Jesus can also step forward and be your representative. And if he can't represent you, if he doesn't represent you, and you can argue all you want, but you're lost, you're gone, there's no hope for you. Because you really can't represent yourself before God. Because even if you, even if you want to argue in your own heart that I, God hasn't imputed sin to me, you know that you're a sinner. You know that you've committed individual acts of sin. No one is perfect. But God doesn't leave you dangling there. He says, hey, you were in Adam, you can be in Christ. Now, a series of contrasts between being in Adam and in Jesus Christ are presented, starting in verse 15. The free gift is not like the offense, for if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift of, uh, by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Now, because of Adam's offense, what we know as his sin in the garden, many died. In fact, all died, as we just saw in verse 14, when it said, death reigned from Adam to Moses. By contrast, Jesus offers salvation as a gift through God's grace, which he says, abounded to many. Now, this word many is being used in two different ways. The first many refers to all those who are in Adam, which is every member of the human race. The second many refers to all those who are in Jesus Christ. This is not the whole human race, but as is described in verse 17, it is those who receive Jesus Christ by faith. And that just makes logical sense. He says many died in Adam. And then you read on and it says, well, actually, you know, he's talking about the entire human race. Past, you know, sin is passed onto the race and sin brings death. And those who are in Adam, who are alive, physically alive, soulishly active, but spiritually dead, then Jesus Christ comes along and He dies on the cross, He raises from the dead, and He offers to be your representative. And out of that pool of humanity, all those who are in Adam, those who receive Jesus Christ now are in Christ. And He becomes their representative. 
In another area of Scripture, Adam is called the first man and Jesus is called the second man uh, in the sense of this representation. And so, I'm in Adam. I'm hopelessly lost. Uh, I've inherited a sin nature. I commit individual acts of sin and God has imputed sin to me. It's in my account and I'm going to die. But then Jesus came along and He died for me and in my place as my substitute and sacrifice. And when I receive that gift of salvation by grace through faith, He now becomes my representative and God sees me in Him. Not all people will be saved. At the cross of Jesus Christ, an atonement for sin was made that is sufficient for whosoever will believe. Everyone is therefore potentially justifiable, but only those who actually receive Jesus Christ are justified. That makes sense, doesn't it? Absolutely. For those of you mulling over Calvinism regarding the extent of Jesus' work on the cross, at least one notable Calvinist, John Calvin, said this, I like saying that, but it's, it's kind of funny. Some of you don't care about these issues. Some of you care too much about them. But, you know, there is a, a kind of an ongoing thread of debate through the Christian church today, a resurgence of uh, Calvinism and Reformed theology and five-point Calvinism. And, and um, the truth is, uh, John Calvin wasn't a Calvinist in the modern sense of Calvinism. And concerning the atonement, the extent of the atonement, which a, a modern Calvinist or a Reformed theologian will tell you that Jesus only died for the elect, he only died for a small group of people who he knew would get saved, that his death doesn't really cover everyone. Uh, here's what John Calvin said. He said, Paul makes grace common to all men, not because it is in fact extended to all, but because it is offered to all. Although Christ suffered for the sins of the world and is offered without distinction to all men, yet not all receive him. If you didn't know John Calvin wrote that, you'd accuse him of being an Arminian. Uh, because he says, the, the, what, and he's commenting on this verse, on these verses, and he says, when Jesus died, it's an offer to all men. And he goes, not everyone will receive him, but his death is sufficient for all. And so... Um, that's why I kind of like that John 3.16 because it's just it's the Bible in miniature and it answers so many questions and you might want to argue with it and say, well, wait a minute, you know, what about this? And what about Yeah, what about John 3.16 where God just spells it out and, and, and obliterates all these different isms. So atheism is on the rise. Uh, Gino at uh, the Men's Fellowship this morning was reading a news item about a, a movie that's coming out uh, it's called The Ledge, I think, and it's a, it's a movie that pits atheists against Christians, makes the Christians the bad guy and, and the atheists the heroes. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, and atheism is on the rise. There are atheism billboards and, you know, people are proud of being atheists and stuff. And, and, and so, John 3.16, for God, there's a God. There is no atheism. And then you go on through it and stuff. And, and so we believe that the gospel is for whosoever will believe. And we don't want to qualify that any further than that. And that's what Paul the Apostle believed. That's what Jesus believed. It was good enough for those guys. It's good enough for us, right? Let's not get too complex. Romans 5.16 The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. God passed the judgment upon Adam, the judgment that he promised and warned him about, after he sinned, 
and the entire human race that he represented and that sprung from him was thereby condemned. So God made it clear to Adam and Eve, he says, the day that you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will surely die. They died uh, spiritually and they began to die physically. And they would have died eternally in the sense of being separated from God had not God intervened uh, and promised to come into our reality as a man and die for our sins. And so God passed the judgment that he had pronounced upon Adam and it has brought condemnation upon the entire human race. Adam's one offense gave rise to all the many offenses his descendants commit. I mean, I don't want to meditate on it too much, but you think, okay, eating a fig, which I, my personal preference is the fig, if you know people, people think it's an apple, uh, but it's, what did they put on themselves after they ate the forbidden fruit? Apple leaves? No, fig leaves. I don't think they ate an apple and said, we're naked, let's find a fig tree. Because I've been thinking how cool it would be to cover myself with fig leaves or with uh, or apple leaves, you know. So, so uh, they they went and found the, uh, you know, they were at a fig tree. I got that all screwed up, but anyway, they were at a, a fig tree uh, and they ate figs and they put figs on, and so and then they had figgy pudding, I guess, after that. But anyway. Um, it's like apples and oranges to me, but it's apples and figs. I can't keep them apart. But anyway, so uh, that's the deal. Adam's one offense gave rise to many offenses. You see, well, how can eating that fig, and then you look at the world today with the brutality and the cruelty and the, and the, I mean, you can hardly watch the news anymore as a Christian if you figure out what's really going on in the world. Uh, you know, the, uh, again, this morning, we, if, you, if you haven't come to the Men's Fellowship on Wednesday mornings, we like to read news items, and we try and keep some of them lighthearted, you know, but we read them from a Christian point of view, and every week there's stories about the atrocities that are taking place in other parts of the world. The, the sex trade in America, not in other parts of the world, but in America where young girls, very young girls, are being kidnapped and sold into the sex trade in our own country. And all the terrible brutality. You think, how does that relate to what Adam did in the Garden of Eden where he, he took a bite out of a fig. But that's what Paul is saying. He says that one offense, that disobedience to God has given rise to all the many offenses that we as his descendants commit. Nonetheless, by God's grace, those who receive the gift of God's salvation are justified despite their many offenses. If you got saved later in your life, didn't it just blow your mind that God was able to forgive you your sin? I mean, you know, I'm not a big person. I, I think testimonies are important, and, and I'm not against people giving their testimony. But I sometimes don't know how to put a, a testimony into perspective because you, it, it almost, you know, you have the battle of the testimony sometimes where people, you know, they, they want to have the worst possible testimony. Oh, yeah, you did that. Well, I did this, you know, and, uh, and, and the end of it is great. You know, God, but, but, you know, anymore, the older I get in, in the Lord, when I think back on what I was doing and what I was like before I was a Christian, I just want to cry. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to remember it. I wish, you know, that somehow I could have grown up in a Christian home and avoided 90% of the things that I did or, or that happened to me or that I even thought about. 
Uh, you know, and so we have to be careful with this. I mean, it was awful. And then you come to the cross of Jesus Christ and, and the love of God and the grace of God and the, the mercy of God, it just washes over you. And, 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 and then it gives rise to the songs we sing, White as snow, white as snow. Though my sins were as scarlet, Lord, I know, now they're white as snow. We talk about being washed by the blood. And, and those are things you think, man, that's a weird phrase. But, but, I, you, but you, you feel that way. You feel like because Jesus died and shed His blood on the cross, I'm washed clean of my sin. It's, it's just as if I'd never done it as far as God is concerned. I don't find anybody in this world who can forgive me that way. People who love me the most still harbor things against me or, you know, or wish I wasn't such a jerk. But God has forgiven me at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so those offenses, they've, they've been done away with by grace. Verse 17, For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So death reigned through Adam. It was and it is a tyrant bringing every human being under its grip and into fear. Non-believers fear death, and those who don't should, because there's nothing for them on the other side except darkness and, and you know, sorrow and terror. And so death is a, death is a tyrant. Death is a cruel taskmaster. Death, you know, it's, it's nasty when you think about that. By contrast, those who receive the salvation offered by God through Jesus, it says they reign in life. In other words, you become a ruler in a new kingdom characterized by eternal life. Death has no bearing on you anymore. Now, as I indicated earlier, you may not agree with the idea that you were in Adam when he sinned, but you really like this idea of being in Jesus Christ. If we aren't made sinners by Adam, then it isn't fair for us to be made righteous by Jesus. Because what Jesus did was all about responding to what Adam did. There in the Garden of Eden, God said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to come, the seed of the woman, I'm going to do battle with the devil, and when it's over you are going to have eternal life. I'm going to substitute myself, my death, for you, and you're going to have life. And so you can't have one without the other. And so once I'm in Christ, I have the perspective that, yeah, I understand I was in Adam, and now I'm in Christ, and that's a deal. That's the deal of a lifetime right there. Because there's, Paul uses the much mores here. He says, no, how much more we get in Christ than we got from Adam. If every man must stand for himself without the representation of either Adam or Jesus, then we're all going to perish. None would be saved because each of us sins and falls short of the glory of God. Only a sinless person acting on our behalf can save us, and it is fair for him to act on our behalf because another man put us in this mess by acting on our behalf. It's brilliant, really. It's something you could never think of on your own. And so God says, Adam's going to represent you, and because one man represented you and put you in this problem, another man can represent you and get you out of this dilemma, but it has to be one very special man. It has to be the God-man. It has to be God in human flesh. You're in Adam, 
you're in trouble, you can be in Christ. All you need to do is receive the free gift of His salvation. Romans 5.18, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Adam's sin was the one offense. The cross of Jesus Christ is the one righteous act. As a result, the free gift comes to all men. Again, we point out, not all men are saved at the cross, but the free gift is available to all men, and those who receive it by faith have the result of being justified. Without making a choice, you were represented by Adam in his offense. Of course, you couldn't make a choice because you weren't alive. By the very nature of a gift, it must be received. As to being in Jesus, you are offered a choice. And if God gives you a choice, then He also gives you free will to choose. Verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. The same conclusion is stated in different words where Adam's act is called disobedience and the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ is called obedience. As a result, the many were made Literally, it means they were constituted as sinners. In the second half of verse 19, the many means those who receive. They are not simply declared righteous, but they will be made righteous. This is the same word used for made that means stand constituted at. And so, Paul's generally talking about justification, God declaring you righteous. But he also sneaks in here the idea that that's just the beginning. God declares you righteous, and then... After you're saved, it begins a journey, a walk with God in which you are sanctified day by day. As we cooperate with God, we don't get more saved, but we become more Christ-like. You can't be any more saved than you were the day you were saved. You're fully saved, 100% genuine saved. Because uh, ju- God justifies you. He says, Gene, today you received my son Jesus Christ I see you in Him just as if you had never sinned. Now let's get to work and let's have your position as this person in Christ work out in practice as you mature as a Christian and become more like Jesus Christ. And one day, Gene, through all of your failures and falling short and all of that, through your three steps forward and two steps back, one day you'll be glorified. One day your work of sanctification will be over. You're going to either get hit by a bus or the rapture is going to come. But you'll be in heaven with me and you'll have a glorified body and then you'll be free from the very presence of sin. Right now I'm free from the penalty of sin because of what Jesus did on the cross. We're going to see in Romans 6 and 7 and 8 coming up now, I can be free from the power of sin. I don't have to sin anymore. I do sin, but I don't have to. And Paul's going to tell us how to overcome sin in this work of sanctification. But one day I will be free from the presence of sin. It will be impossible for me to sin. I will have a totally glorified uh, body with a sinless nature. uh, And I will go on into eternity. So that's what Paul is hinting at and getting us ready for uh, in Uh, the upcoming chapters. If you understood, I guess if I understood the the language of the day, I would be listening and thinking, hmm, he's 
he's been talking about how I'm saved. Now he's talking about something more than that. I wonder what that is. And he's going to tell us. Now, let me make a quick theological note. This idea of Adam and Jesus as two representatives of the human race, it's sometimes referred to as federal theology. This is what theologians actually call it. Adam and Jesus are sometimes referred to as our federal heads. I'm only saying this because you might read this someday and think, what's that all about? It's theological jargon. Under a federal system of government, representatives are chosen and the representative speaks for the people. Adam speaks for those he represents, those who are in Adam, and Jesus speaks for his people, those who are in Jesus. It's called the federal headship of the human race. And so all human beings are in Adam. Those who receive Christ have the opportunity to be in Christ and be saved. Now, if you were a Jew, especially in the first century Rome, you would wonder where the law of Moses fits into all this discussion of salvation and sanctification. And so Paul takes up that topic in the final verses of the chapter where he says, verse 20, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Now, earlier we discussed the period between Adam and Moses before God's law was given, and Paul said everybody died because sin was imputed before the law was given. Now Paul says, now from Moses forward, guess what? Everybody still dies, uh, but they have a better idea of why they're dying. The law of Moses gives definition to just how much we sin. When you see God's righteous standard, you see how Adam's one offense abounds. Uh, and so it's a, it's a simple thing. He's not saying there wasn't sin before the law. He's just saying that when, you, when that sign gets posted, you know, if I'm, if I'm walking across the grass day in and day out taking a shortcut, uh, and I, I know that it's, well, uh, uh, for example, here on campus, skateboarding is not a crime, right? We love skateboarders. Uh, but when we first moved here, they were ruining, uh, you know, all Ken's good work on the steps and on the ramp and, you know, skateboards uh, and, and inline skates, they just tear things up. Uh, and so, uh, so we, we had to come up with all of this stuff. But uh, the police department let us know that even though... It should be obvious to somebody that they shouldn't be skateboarding and tearing up your property. You have to have a sign posted that says no skateboarding in order for the police to do anything about it. You can't just go out there and say, hey, you can't skateboard here. Somebody could say, well, why not? I don't see any sign. I don't see anybody telling me I can't and all that kind of stuff. And so Hanford PD wanted us to put up signs. You'll notice some of them are all bent over and wiped out, you know, and stuff. As, but, you know, that's just part of the thing. And so that's what Paul is saying. He says, hey, before the law was given, you're still a sinner. But after the law comes, it's like now it's posted. And you say, oh, I really am. This is, yeah, this is really wrong. It's a lot more wrong than I thought it was. And if you read God's law with an eye towards trying to keep it, you think this is impossible. You ever read through the Old Testament? I mean, you, those of you who go through the Bible every year, Admit to, you, to yourself, at least, that when you get to Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you want to kill yourself. You think, man, when is this going to be over? What are you kidding? What? What? I can't wear wool and this at the same time. And what's this about a mother's milk and all that? I mean, there's some crazy rules in there. You think, yeah, I just did that today. And you realize what a sinner you are because God has all these rules and regulations. And then Jesus comes along and He says, hey, it's worse than that. 
Because these are talking about attitudes of the heart. And so that's what the law does. People always want to put up the Ten Commandments. I'm all for that, by the way. I'm not against that. I think they should put up the Ten Commandments everywhere. But I think sometimes people think we need the Ten Commandments as rules to live by. And God says, yeah, that'd be great if anybody could do that. But if you really read the Ten Commandments, if you really read the law, you think, I'm in trouble. I can't do any of that in my own strength. I need Jesus Christ. So if we want to put up the Ten Commandments to lead people to Christ, that's the real goal. Not just to have the Ten Commandments up and have people think that they are keeping them. Verse 20, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace much more abounded. So uh, no matter how much sin abounds, God's grace abounds more and more. So that, verse 21, as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin reigned in death and still does for those who are in Adam. Receive Jesus Christ by faith and grace will reign through righteousness to eternal life. And so, Paul is picturing death as a king that reigns over your life. The reign of death kills every hope, it kills every dream, it kills every joy with its brutal reality. Jesus was honest when he said, What does it gain a man, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? So you're, you're way beyond Bill Gates or some of these guys who are the wealthiest people in the world. Jesus says, you're the guy who owns the entire world. Everything. You're the one guy that has gained the whole world, and then you lose your soul. He says, what profit is there in that? That's a bad deal. And, and so, death is cruel. Paul pictured God's grace as a king that reigns over your life. And that reign is characterized by righteousness. Now, by the way, if grace is reigning... I will respect God's standard of righteousness. I will agree with it and respect it. I will love righteousness, which is doing what is right. Grace never results in a license to sin. Quite the contrary, grace isn't something that accommodates sin. It conquers sin by abounding when sin is present. The argument always against Paul and against those who teach grace is that if you tell people they're not under the law, you say there's nothing they have to do, they're going to leave and do whatever they want. They're going to go out and live, you know, flagrantly licentious lives. They're going to have all kinds of vices and all that. And the answer to that is, Paul's answer is always, God forbid, that person doesn't understand grace because he says grace reigns through righteousness. So your heart is excited about doing what is right not about the ability to do what is wrong and still be a Christian. And so a Christian who hears the message of grace and goes out and continues to sin or to toy with sin, that person doesn't understand grace. Grace is not abounding in their life. Uh, they don't understand the nature of God. Thomas Brooks is quoted as saying, Grace is not a friend to sin. It is its sworn enemy. As heat is opposed to cold and light to darkness, grace is opposed to sin. Fire and water may as well agree in the same vessel as grace and sin in the same heart. Uh, and uh, I love Paul. I was this, earlier this week I had a chance to use the illustration of Paul the Apostle uh, in the book of Corinthians. The Corinthians thought they were so gracious because they had a guy living in open sin in their church. 
and they were letting him come and say, hey, see that guy? He's, he's committing incest with his father's wife, you know? And we love him so much. We're so full of grace. And Paul came and he says, yeah, here's what we're going to do with that guy. We're going to turn him over to the devil. We're going to deliver him to the devil. Knock on his door and say, Mr. Devil, here's this guy. We want you to take over his life because he doesn't understand the grace of God. So let's turn him over to the devil. So Paul's like, Paul is like the champion of grace. And he says, yeah, you guys don't understand grace. That it is not grace. Grace and sin are incompatible. And so the grace message isn't a message of license to do whatever you want. Quite the contrary. It's a sensitivity to sin and a love of righteousness. Paul also says, I can enjoy eternal life right now. Death and all its fears have no hold upon me. Like the Apostle Paul, I can say... For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor, yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Everywhere you encounter these Bible guys, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, when they really understand what's going on, they say, yeah, if you want to kill me, kill me. That's, that's all to the good. Because then I'm, I'm out of here. I'm done. I don't have this struggle anymore. No flesh to worry about. I'm into glorification. Let's go. But if you don't kill me, all right, then I'm going to serve the Lord. And so death, it, you know, Christianity removes death as your enemy. It's no longer a time, timer. You can thumb your nose at death. Not so the person who's still in Adam. And, uh, you know, I've seen enough people die both ways to know that people who say they're not afraid of dying... They are when it comes to dying if they don't know where they're going. Because they, you come to the cruel awareness that I am going somewhere now. Where is it going to be? Am I in Adam or am I in Christ? And man, I've been, enough, I've been around enough Christians who have died to almost want to die instead of them. And think, man, let me, let's go. Take me with you. The singing and the joy and the love, it's, it's fantastic. It's real. We don't base our life on experience, but Christianity is real and it meets us where we live and when we die. Amen?